Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. Today's Town Hall Forum is originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is David Nasby and I'll be moderating the forum. Today's speaker is international leader and Nobel Prize laureate, Bishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. His topic is truth and reconciliation. When he was born, Desmond Tutu's parents gave him the middle name of Mpilo, meaning life, because they did not expect this sickly child to survive. Early in life, he spent nearly two years in the hospital fighting tuberculosis. The Archbishop has said, that was my first commitment to faith. His faith in South Africa and his determination to help forge a peaceful destiny for his country earned Archbishop Desmond Tutu the Nobel Prize for Peace in 1984. For years, he served as a voice of conscience in South Africa's long struggle against apartheid. In 1995, President Nelson Mandela appointed the Archbishop as chairman of Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. On October 29th of 1998, the commission submitted its initial report to President Mandela, making a significant step in healing the nation. Born just outside of Johannesburg, Archbishop Tutu is the graduate, uh, is a graduate of uh, the University of South Africa. He taught high school in Johannesburg before entering the ministry in 1958. As General Secretary of the South African Council of Churches, Tutu gained national and international stature for his vigorous commitment to social justice. Yesterday, in a very moving ceremony honoring many contributions of men and women dedicated to service to others, representatives from the uh, uh, upper Midwest Native American community, from several Native American communities, honored Archbishop Tutu with a Native American name, Oyani Na, one who teaches by the way he lives. Throughout his life, Archbishop Tutu has seen himself as, quote, a simple pastor, passionately concerned with justice, peace, and reconciliation. The world sees him as a leader of people and of nations, a voice of conscience. Welcome Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Thank you very much, Mr. Moderator, and all of you very dear friends. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful privilege to have been asked to participate in this Westminster Town Hall Forum. Sometimes when you are asked to address a meeting, uh, they say, well, oh, he's well known and we, he does not need to be uh, introduced. A few years ago, I was in uh, San Francisco, and a lady rushed up uh, to greet me, and she said, Hello, Archbishop Mandela. 
Which was, which was probably very good for my soul. Uh, <clears throat> dear friends, we were in what you call a pickle in South Africa. The world and most people predicted that we were going to be overwhelmed by the most ghastly bloodbath that South Africa was on the verge of the most awful civil war. It didn't happen. We won and won a spectacular victory over the injustice, oppression, and ghastliness of apartheid. And you know something? We wouldn't have made it without you. And that's not just being, getting you to say, oh, isn't he nice? <clears throat> it is for real. We won because you supported us. You prayed for us. You upheld us in your love. Many of you went on demonstrations and protest marches on our behalf. And here we are today, the new South Africa, the free South Africa, the democratic South Africa, the non-racial, the non-sexist South Africa. Our victory is your victory in a very, very real sense. And it is an extraordinarily wonderful privilege to be able to come to people like yourselves and others and say on behalf of millions of our people back home, thank you, thank you, thank you for the support that you have given us because that support has brought us where we are. I would have liked to give you a clap, but I mean, I think that most people would say it was very, very odd. He, he probably does have a screw loose in his head if I did it all on my own. Uh, how about joining me in clapping you and all of the many, many others who have done such a tremendous job of work in assisting us, in helping us to become this free nation. Please join me. Please. Thank you. Now I want to tell you that uh, many, many years ago, when things were very, very dark in South Africa, and the struggle was very intense, I met someone who was a, she said she was a solitary, um, a nun. I met her in New York, and I said to her, 
please just tell me a little bit about your life, about yourself. And she said, well, at the time, I live in the woods in California. My day starts at 2 in the morning, and I pray for you. I said, hey! <laughs> Here I am being prayed for in the woods in California <laughs> at 2 in the morning. What does the apartheid government, st what chance does it stand <laughs> against that? <laughs> she is here. I doubt that she will want m me to have done this. <laughs> but Sister Martha, will you stand and, and let's clap you? So you see what I mean? Some of the most awful things happened either to maintain support apartheid or in the opposing of it. You know, we used to say a system as evil as apartheid can survive only by using equally evil methods. And people sometimes thought that that was just sloganeering. But you know, that was a system that had various kinds of laws, such as the Separate Amenities Act. Now, according to that, if you were injured and you were lying on the side of the road and you needed emergency medical attention and an ambulance arrived on the scene and you were black and the ambulance that arrived was white people, then no matter how urgent your emergency might have been. That ambulance left you there. You had to wait until you had the ambulance designed for black people. That happened. And there were those who said, hey, we know that we are human beings created in the image of God, and that gives us inalienable rights. That our worth is something that depends not on biological irrelevances such as skin, color, ethnicity, race, but that it is something intrinsic to who we are. And therefore, you had these people oppose a vicious system. And as they opposed it, so more intense became the repression. 
People were detained. People were banned. People were sentenced to long terms of imprisonment. People were executed. People went into exile. And yet that didn't deter the people. As the violence of the state escalated, so the determination of our people rose as well. And as that re resistance stiffened, so the awfulness of the reaction of the state escalated. We've heard some of that in the evidence before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. A young woman came before the commission and she said, on this particular evening, my husband and I went to the movies. We returned and it was a wonderful occasion for us. We returned. He had received a tape recorder with tape and earphones and had kept it for a little while unattended. And on this evening, he said, no, he wanted to listen to the tape recorder. His wife said, why don't you plug it into the radio so that I can hear too? Either he didn't hear her or he, he ignored her suggestion. He put on the earphones and turned on the tape recorder. And the next moment, an almighty explosion happened. And they had to scrape his brains from the walls. And it was his young widow who came to tell us the story. Or you heard the perpetrator say, we abducted him. We gave him spiked coffee. I shot him in the head. I burnt his body. And as his body was burning, we were having a barbecue on the site two sets of flesh burning. That was the extent of the evil. And how do people react to the, the kind of things that we were hearing were happening, had happened? And of course, you know, on the other side were things like the neck lacing, when those who opposed apartheid some of the activists would put a tie around the neck of somebody, fill it with gasoline, 
and kill people in the most gruesome way. Well, it was possible to say the way you react to this is to revenge, to get your own back. And South Africa would have descended into the kind of thing that we have seen in Kosovo, where you have a reprisal, counter-reprisal, the counter-reprisal provoking another reprisal, and you have that spiral. Northern Ireland, the Middle East, they eschewed. They eschewed what was the natural reaction of people. They said, no, we want to walk a costly path, the path of forgiveness and reconciliation. And God is very good. God is very good to us in South Africa. God has been very good in having given us, at this stage in the history of our country, a Nelson Mandela. No one could have accused him of not knowing anything about suffering. He spent 27 years in jail. And coming out, you expected someone bristling with resentment and anger and bitterness and a lust for revenge. And we were all surprised when this tall, regal figure emerged with an incredible magnanimity, generosity of spirit. At his inauguration, he invited his white jailer to attend as one of the VIP guests. He later invited the man who had been the prosecutor who had sent them to jail for life. And that prosecutor had actually demanded the death sentence. Nelson Mandela invites him to lunch. And so here was an icon who says, no, not revenge. Let's go the way of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of healing. We have seen an exposure of what you and I are capable of. You and I have an incredible capacity for evil. And as you sit and you listen to the accounts of perpetrators, you say, with very deep meaning, thereby, but for the grace of God, go I. Because the perpetrator doesn't have horns, doesn't have a tail. They are ordinary human beings, and I certainly would not be able to predict that had I not 
had I had the same kind of uh, factors and pressures, I couldn't predict that I wouldn't have turned out as they. Which is not, which is not to condone what they have done. Which is just to say, you know, they may have committed the most horrendous deeds, diabolical, call them what you like. It doesn't turn them into monsters. They still remain children of God. They still remain with the capacity to change. Otherwise, we would have had to throw in the towel. The whole business going the route of forgiveness and reconciliation is to say, we believe you have the capacity to change. But sitting there too and listening to the stories, not of those who are well known, many times it had been those who were the anonymous ones, the, the faceless ones, the ones pushed to the edges of society. You sat there and were deeply, deeply humbled by the privilege of listening to people who by rights should have been angry, resentful, vindictive, being filled with an incredible nobility of spirit, magnanimity, a, de a, a, a desire to, to, to forgive. And we said, ha, 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 ha. I've said we have an incredible capacity for evil. We also have a remarkable capacity for good. She was a victim of a hand grenade attack by one of the liberation movements. Many of her friends had died. And she went into ICU for long. When she came out, she couldn't do the thing that you and I take for granted. It was her children who bathed her, who clothed her, who fed her. Do you know what she said? She said, of this experience, which had left her in this condition, and she said, you know, I can't walk through the security checkpoints at an airport. All sorts of alarms go off because I've still got shrapnel. Of this experience, she says, it enriched my life. <laughs> enriched my life, she says. And then she says, I'd like to meet the perpetrator. I'd like to meet him in a spirit of forgiveness. I'd like to forgive him, which is wonderful. But I mean, you could have knocked me down with a feather. When she went on to say, and I, I hope he forgives me. <laughs> I hope, I hope he forgives me. And at that very same hearing, the daughter of one of those we have called the Credoc Four, they came from a place called Credoc. They were ANC-supporting activists. They attended a meeting in Port Elizabeth. They never returned home. Their burnt-out bodies were found in their charred car. 
One of them had an, a hand chopped off. Another had his tongue almost pulled off its roots. And the daughter was telling the commission about how the police continued to harass them even after this. When she finished her testimony, I said, would you consider forgiving people who did this to your dad? You could have heard a pin drop as she replied, we would like to forgive. We just want to know whom to forgive. You are pulled over. You are pulled over by the incredible goodness of people. There was something called the Bishop Massacre. One of the homelands had decided to make the, that particular homeland a no-go area for the ANC, and the ANC decided it was going to protest by having a demonstration. Bishop was the capital of the homeland. And on this particular day, hundreds and hundreds of ANC supporters converged on Bishop and decided to march on Bishop. The Siskayan Defense Force opened fire and 29 people were killed. And one of the soldiers killed by his mates and 200 people were injured. We had the, the hearing in a huge hall, packed to the rafters. The first witness was the former head of the Siskayan Defense Force, and he, he really he upset, I mean, he upset even me. I tried not to show it. Uh, <laughs> by what he, I think, more by how he said what he said. And so the tension in the room, you could cut it with a knife. And the next set of witnesses was four soldiers, one white, three black. And the white was the spokesperson. And he said, yes, as officers, we gave the orders for the soldiers to open fire. <laughs> the temperature rose in the room. And then he turned to the audience and he said, please forgive us. Please forgive these three of my colleagues and receive them back into the community. You know what that audience did? They applauded. Incredible. They applauded. And when, when the applause subsided, I said, please, let us keep quiet. 
because we are in the presence of something holy. And there were many, many occasions when you felt that the right response to what was happening in front of us was to take off your shoes because you were standing on holy ground. It was costly. It was costly. But it was because people were saying, maybe we should open the wounds, cleanse them, so that they don't fester, pour balm on them. And then, and then maybe they will heal. This is the root. South Africa, because you have prayed for us, I don't know why Christians can pray and then are surprised when God answers the prayers and has miracles. Hmm? Hmm? You have prayed for us. You have prayed us to move in this direction. And why? <laughs> why? Why? It's, it's because God has a sense of humor. <laughs> God, God has a sense. Could, could, could any one of you in their right mind ever have thought that South Africa could be the, an example of anything but the most ghastly awfulnesses? <laughs> God says, God says. <laughs> Precisely because South Africa is such an unlikely candidate, such an unlikely lot, God says <laughs> they are not. They are not even. They are not even virtuous. They wouldn't have had apartheid for as long as they did had they been virtuous. They are not even smart. There's a story told of a South African who got upset that uh, the United States and the Soviet Union, it was those days when the Soviet Union was still the Soviet Union, was upset at their space program. And uh, he said, aha, we, we in South Africa are going to launch a spacecraft to the sun, no less. <laughs> and when people said, to the sun, long before it reaches the sun, you know, it will be burned to cinders. He says, oh, you think we South Africans are stupid? We'll launch it at night. <laughs> but God, God is saying, Kosovo, Bosnia, Middle East, Sri Lanka, Northern Ireland. Just look at them. Look, look, South Africa. Hmm? Look at them. They, they, had, they had a nightmare called apartheid. It's ended. Your nightmare will end too. They had a problem that people said was an intractable problem. They are solving it. Nowhere in the world can they ever again speak of problems as being intractable. 
And so we are going to succeed, not because we deserve to succeed. We're going to succeed for the sake of God's world. Thank you, Archbishop Tutu. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum in downtown Minneapolis. I'm David Nasby, moderator for today's forum. Our speaker today is Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who has just spoken on the topic of truth and reconciliation. While the ushers collect the questions from our audience, I would like to note that the co-sponsors of today's forum are the McKnight, General Mills, and Dayton Hudson Foundations. I also like to take this opportunity to introduce the group uh, gathered here today to Mrs. Tutu. <laughs> Archbishop, perhaps you can join us again at the podium and we'll begin the question. Yes, sir. You thanked us for past support of South Africa. What can we do now to support the new South Africa? Ah. We used to say we needed to have economic pressure on the, on the apartheid government exerted on the apartheid government, and so we spoke about sanctions and, and disinvestment. Of course, we would like you to continue your praying, because maybe the getting the freedom was the easiest part. Much, much the most difficult is this new stage where you have to deal with the legacy of apartheid, the homelessness, the poverty, the poor education, the inadequate health. And we would, we would hope, I mean, that we would get as many coming in. I used to be called Mr. Sanctions or Mr. Disinvestment, now I would like to be called Mr. Investment. Um, invest massively in South Africa and pray for us. Right. <laughs> did, the, uh, did the two years of the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission hearings include most of the perpetrators? The amnesty process has not yet finished. Right. Um, we, we, we received 7,000 applications for amnesty. There were very many from the police force. We didn't get 
as many as we would have hoped for from the army, the defense force. Um, and we didn't perhaps get as many from the higher echelons. Uh, but I think we have had enough to have been able to put together a, a coherent picture of our past. Right. What, um, is, would you say that the current mood in South Africa is one of forgiveness? <laughs> well, you know, forgiveness is not easy. <laughs> uh, there are those who would say they are not ready to forgive. But I would, I would say that uh, basically um, the tendency has been towards that. I, I've said to white people, don't you think you are actually fortunate that you have people in 1994, when we had our elections, living in shacks, in squalor, in poverty, who get up from their township ghettos and go and work for you in your nice houses, in your salubrious settings, and they go back to their townships with no lights, no running water. Four years down the line, there's still many of them living in those conditions, and they go back into the white community work, and they don't, they don't say to hell with reconciliation and peace and go on a rampage. Uh, I say, I mean, that that does show that fundamentally, fundamentally, people would be saying, we, we do want forgiveness. But reconciliation is going to be subverted very, very considerably unless we have a transformation in the material conditions of people. Right. <clears throat> right. In, uh, in one, of the, the, uh, write, one of your writings that I've uh, gone over this last week, I, I noted a, a quotation from Martin Luther King uh, related to a biblical passage on an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The question here is, can you explain the biblical passage eye for an eye, and how can we take, or how can you take, or all of us take your message to Israel and Kosovo? Yes. Uh, in, in fact, I, I, I hope, I mean, that all of you uh, are uh, biblical scholars, aren't you? Uh, I mean, you, <laughs> you, you, you know enough of the fact that what maybe appalls us now when we speak about an eye for an eye was at a time when it was upheld, in fact, a, a gracious act. Because in those days, if you clobbered me, I wasn't going to look for the actual perpetrator anyone related to you would be part of my vendetta. And, and so when they, they said an eye for an eye, they were actually limiting the operation of vendetta. They were saying, don't let everybody be a victim. Let it be the actual perpetrator. 
But of course, our Lord moved it way away from that. Because our Lord basically said, accept being clobbered. Accept being clobbered. Uh, that that is the ethos, the ethics of the kingdom. The ethics of a kingdom that speaks about a God whose power is demonstrated not by being macho. God demonstrates God's power in the self-emptiness. The power the omnipotent God who becomes impotent, strung up on a cross. Who could ever in their right mind say, hey, this is God. This is God, the omnipotent one. And God is constantly hoping that you and I are going to be able to say to the world, Greatness actually lies in being a servant. And we say, no, 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 that can't be. And yet, there is an instinct in us that recognizes goodness. Why do you recognize a Mother Teresa? You couldn't say she succeeded. And she certainly was not macho. I mean, she's, you could... <laughs> You could put her in your back pocket and forget her. I mean, she's... And, and yet, and yet people recognized, recognized the goodness. And the goodness was because of the self-emptying. Nelson Mandela, 27 years in jail. Humanly speaking, what a waste. What a waste. 27. Can you imagine what he would have done in 27? Maybe not. That he needed those 27 years of apparent frustration and weakness in order to come out as he's come out. And now and again, you and I catch glimpses of this, the glory of God. And sometimes you and I live it out in those moments when we don't actually stand on our dignity. We don't try to take our own, get our own back. And, and, and you, you, you do feel the glow of goodness in your heart when you've done that. We do it only spasmodically. When the current leaders pass from the scene, Mandela and Tutu, does the next generation of ANC leadership have the same sense and commitment to forgiveness. I'm glad they don't look like me. I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. This is one thing the world doesn't know, that we have, in fact, a remarkable depth of leadership quality in South Africa. Some of the younger leaders, we are beginning to know something of a Tabumbeki. He, he was asked, uh, would he be able to fill 
Nelson Mandela's shoes. And he said, no fear, he wears such ugly shoes. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think we are crazy if we're going to expect a second Nelson Mandela. Thabo Mbeki is not Nelson Mandela. Thank goodness. He is Thabo Mbeki. He's got his own gifts. He's got his own weaknesses. And, and I, 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 I am thrilled, actually, that I will be able to sit on the sidelines and watch our country go from strength to strength under the leadership of some quite remarkable young mm -hmm, people. Mm -hmm. yeah. What progress has been made in diversifying ownership of South African industries to black South Africans? Well, as you know, I, I, I pointed out that transformation is painfully slow. Um, and people get upset even about things like so-called affirmative action, where the government is saying, let's try to level out the, the playing fields, as it were. Those people who were discriminated against for so many, many, many decades, they, they need special assistance, special consideration. And, and many white people who used to benefit from something called the Job Reservations Act, where black people were excluded from certain professions. Only white people could do that. I mean, you couldn't have had more wonderful affirmative action for white people. <laughs> and, and I, I think that people don't realize that it is for their own sake that those changes must happen. Right. Because it's not, they, I mean, I am I'm still surprised at the, at the patience of people, that they don't push Mandela aside or uh, two, two or so, and, and just say, to hell with this, and, and go on a rampage, you know, mm -hmm. so that it is, it is the best form of self-interest to say we've got to do everything to diversify, to change the ownership as quickly as we can. What, what role is the World Bank or the IMF playing, or what, should, what role should they be playing? I'm very ambivalent towards those two bodies, as you probably know, and I, I have told them so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that I think, I mean, there are structural, structural adjustment programs and things of that kind. I said, I, I mean, you know, I don't know anything about uh, economics, but I certainly know that there must be something wrong with a policy, a system, whose end result is that people suffer. And people suffer, I mean, as if they were ciphers. And that I can't tolerate. And one has told them, I mean, please, for goodness sake, realize that human beings are never means. They are always ends. Certainly in the book that I read, 
I believe that they are beginning to make adjustments. They went to the um, meeting of Anglican bishops um, in, 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 in uh, Lambeth and began to be talking about uh, um, the cancellation or uh, reduction of the debt burden. Right. Um, and I think that there are some in those institutions who are beginning to, to realize that uh, economics is not an autonomous thing. Uh, it operates because human beings actually manipulate the rules. Right. And if they can manipulate them in, in one direction, they can manipulate them in another direction. And we're trying to persuade them, change, and make them a little more people friendly. Right. On a different, in a different direction, what is the situation for those living in townships such as Soweto now? Describe the conditions. Well, I, 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 I did this uh, even before I knew that we were going to ask that question, when I told you that most people actually, um, the, the, the circumstances have not changed all that much. But that also is a generalization that's not very good because For instance, you might not think it was anything to write home about, but when a government can say we are now in a position where so many households have got clean water, that for us is an achievement. Right. When people had to walk several hours to go to a, an infested pool to get water, it is, it is an achievement. It is an achievement when our government is able to say, look, uh, we now are providing free health care for children up to the age of six and expectant mothers. But that was not the case. And I was looking at something the other day which is saying that especially in the rural areas, they are, they, they are moving in the direction of being able to say no one is more than five miles away from a clinic or a place that provides health care. Basically, basically, it is that I don't think that we would have too many white people wanting to say, we think we want to come and live in Soweto. Right, right. What is your answer to those uh, whose pain the individual pain that they have as a result of discrimination or separation leads them to call for justice in the form of extreme punishment to those uh, perpetrators of violence. Yes. Quite a few, for instance, the family of Steve Biko, uh, mm -hmm. the Mkhenge family, where the husband and wife, a lawyer team, were killed brutally. Uh, the Riberos, the doctor and his wife, who were killed by uh, COVID forces, those have said that they, they, they feel that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and its operations uh, um, has in fact violated their constitutional rights. And they, they did take us to the Constitutional Court. Fortunately, the Constitutional Court found that the provision of amnesty 
was constitutional. It was provided for in the interim constitution and in the final constitution that was accepted. And we say to them, yes, we understand, but remember that what is taking place in South Africa at the moment is an interim arrangement. It is something that is saying, if we didn't have amnesty, we wouldn't have a free South Africa. Mm -hmm. Because the security forces would certainly not have supported right. a, a transition from repression to democracy had they known that they were going to be for the high jump. Um, and that this is an ad hoc arrangement. Originally, it was for about two years. We're going to work for two years, do this in two years. As soon as we're finished, we close the books and say we have dealt with our past as adequately as we possibly could. And now we can close the door on that past, not to forget it, but not to allow it to hold us hostage, to remember so that we don't repeat it. Uh -huh. In the same line, this, the questioner says that uh, he or she has been amazed at the transition from apartheid. But it's 200 years later in America, and many of our black citizens remain oppressed. Is South Africa prepared for this transition journey that apparently we haven't done so well? What's the plan? Well, of course, I don't want to talk about you. Um, <laughs> except to say, except to say, uh, if you asked me, which you haven't done, <laughs> I would have said which I did say to President Clinton when he visited South Africa, that you probably need to have a process such as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that people need to tell their story. But now to uh, about us, well, we've already made this particular transition, and we have taken this step. The next step is actually trying to get people who have been alienated from one another for three centuries, mm -hmm. try to get them to become one nation. And it is clear that it's not going to be something where we wished we had it, a magic wand that we could wave. So yesterday's enemies are today's friends. It's not going to happen that way. It's going to be a very, very, very long process. There have been extraordinary instances of reconciliation, but reconciliation, especially where you have had the anguish of this kind of, ex of history is going to be a long drawn out process. And we hope, I mean, that our fellow South Africans will reach out to one another, will respond to the generosity of spirit that they have been shown in a like generosity of spirit. 
What role can America's religious leaders play in healing the violence in our communities? They're doing a tremendous job. I just want you to know, I mean, that we were supported very, very wonderfully by the different uh, churches, by the different councils of churches uh, at the time when we were struggling. And I just recall now, I mean, that when black churches were being burned, especially black churches were being burned in the South, uh, the National Council of Churches uh, had a, a project to raise funds to assist in rebuilding those churches and, and therefore in the healing. And I, I just believe that the religious community, not just the Christian community, the religious community has remarkable resources. They reach out into the community in a way that no other uh, organization does. And we certainly um, are beneficiaries of the work of the faith community. And, and I believe, I believe that the healing which waits, you see, it waits for justice to happen. The healing that says, can we have a new kind of society in this country? A, a, a more compassionate society. Not so vindictive. A more inclusive society that says everyone belongs. Especially at this time, people of different sexual orientation. You say, you belong, you belong. We are members of a family. And the churches and the synagogues and the mosques, all, all, have a, a remarkable role to play, and I know that they are going to play. That's a fine comment to end our <laughs>